Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, everybody. CJ here. Welcome to episode 107 of the Dangerous History Podcast. Here I am, just arrived back home yesterday evening from the long, long, long journey from St. Augustine, Florida, up to Lancaster, New Hampshire, and back to speak at the Porcupine Freedom Festival, a.k.a. Porkfest. And I was there for Porkfest, lucky number 13. First time I've ever been there. And it was a hell of a drive getting up there and back. And I was only able to be there for two nights, not even 48 hours total, but I was glad I went. Not only because I got to speak there, but also because I got to meet a lot of cool people. So it was totally worth the 20-some-odd hours drive each way to get there. And good news, I brought my mobile podcasting kit with me, and I was able to use my own portable digital recorder with a line out from the mixer at the event to record my remarks. So here it is for you as a podcast episode in case you were not able to make it. By the way, it's normally right around now I'd be thanking new Patreon supporters of the Dangerous History Podcast, and tragically, I have no new ones to thank. So please consider if you enjoy and find value in what I do here at the Dangerous History Podcast, going over to patreon.com slash profcj and signing up to support the show on a per episode donation basis. And if you sign up for at least a dollar per episode donation, I will thank you by name in the next show that I produce. And in addition to that, you will have access to some bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes that are available nowhere else. So before I, I share with you my presentation from Porkfest, though, I have to say a lot of thanks. First off, thanks to all listeners who've helped me out financially in any way, both my, my regular recurring donors and those who sent in special one-time donations for Porkfest. It was a huge help getting me up there and back. I want to say thanks to Taryn and to Nick for giving me the opportunity, the invitation to speak at Porkfest. Thanks to Nicole and Joe for letting me crash on their campsite. And thanks to Lou for feeding me very, very well with his awesome assault kitchen. And it was really great meeting some listeners and all kinds of people that I've only previously known from online. Really great. So all of you who came out to hear me, all of you who are listeners of the Dangerous History Podcast, who I got a chance to meet, it was great meeting you. Thanks for coming out. Now, I got my whole presentation. I have to say, though, I ended up with some audio issues on kind of the, the introduction and on the Q&A, but the actual heart of the presentation came through, I think, quite well. So I'm very happy to share it with you. Here you go. 
Applying Guerrilla Methods Beyond War. My presentation from Porkfest 13. This presentation, one of my ulterior motives, is to try and set a record for a libertarian presentation for a number of times quoting Mao Zedong, <laughs> and actually doing so largely in agreement. But I figured out how to do it, so here we go, Guinness. What do IRA leader Michael Collins, better known as Liam Neeson, and zombie filmmaker George Romero have in common? The answer is a lot more than you might think. In this presentation, I'm going to do my best to provide you with information, but also hopefully some inspiration about ways in which seemingly weak actors can triumph over very difficult obstacles or opponents, and looking at what valuable lessons we can learn that'll apply to our lives, regardless of what it is you're looking to do in your life, ways that you can use the tactics by which David can defeat Goliath to succeed in whatever it is you want to do. Michael Collins once said, all I want to lead is 60 determined trustworthy men, and I'll beat the British. And in 1919, when Michael Collins began his guerrilla campaign against the British Empire, the British Empire was at its height. It had just triumphed in the First World War against the Kaiser's army. The sun never set on it. During that war, Irish nationalists, among whom was Collins, rose up in what was known as the Easter Rising. Check out my podcast from couple months ago for that, and were decisively crushed by British forces. So things in 1919 wouldn't have looked very optimistic from the perspective of someone like Michael Collins. There in the oldest, closest, and always most problematic British colony, that of Ireland. They had very little in the way of firepower and funds, the things that normally are considered the most important ingredients to achieving victory in war. They had on paper a large number of patriotic volunteers, but in reality, only a few thousand of them really were genuine trigger pullers. And of those, many had no arms or very, very inadequate arms. So on paper, it should look like Michael Collins's force has not a prayer against the might of the British Empire. And yet within a few short years, this very poor excuse for a conventional army that Michael Collins led was able to do something that the Kaiser's vaunted army could not do, which was to bring the British Empire to a defeat. Now, Michael Collins doesn't deserve all the credit for doing this, but I would argue he deserves more of it than any other single individual in the War of Irish Independence. 
And he's an interesting guy when you look into his background. Before he joined the IRA, as it eventually became known, he was a postal worker and a bank clerk. Okay? Job qualifications that seem like they would have no relevance to triumphing in guerrilla warfare. And unlike American postal workers, as far as I know, British postal workers are not known for going on rampages. So if you're thinking that, no. Prior to 1916, Michael Collins had no military experience and only a small amount of kind of paramilitary training from Irish nationalist groups. However, in those jobs, seemingly unrelated of being a postal worker and a bank clerk, he had learned how to run an organization, and he had learned about finance. And these things would actually prove very helpful to him when he engaged in guerrilla warfare. Also, while he was working those jobs, he had lived for many years in London, which had given him a lot of insight into his opponent. This harkens back to the old saying from Sun Tzu from over 2,000 years ago, know your enemy and know yourself, and in a 1,000 battles, you'll never be in danger. In the Easter Rising of 1916, Michael Collins participated in it and was among those who were thrown into prison afterward. And upon his release, he began trying to figure out what the mistakes were of 1916 and how he could turn them around and be successful against the British. He decided that what he would do is to fight the British in a very different way from how the British themselves fought. In other words, in an asymmetric fashion. So he began setting about doing this. The idea is to avoid large-scale military engagements like the uh, Easter Rising rebels had tried to engage in in Dublin in the 1916. To not try to fight those big conventional battles, but instead to wage unconventional asymmetric warfare against the British. Among the various jobs that Collins held during the renegade Irish government during the War of Irish Independence were Minister of Finance, Director of Information, Director of Organization and Arms Procurement, Director of Intelligence, and President of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. In these capacities, Collins was able to organize a very effective irregular military force. He was able to direct many of its guerrilla campaigns, to fund it, to procure weapons for it, and to, most impressive of all, to develop an extremely effective intelligence network that penetrated into the very nerve center of British power in Ireland. By the way, those ministries and departments that Collins ran were oftentimes one or two people hiding out in the bedroom of a house owned by a supporter of the cause. Somehow, Collins managed to raise over 400,000 pounds to finance the Irish Rebellion and help keep his guerrilla campaign going. He launched it with very limited manpower, very limited resources, very limited arms and ammunition. He started very small, ambushing small Royal Irish Constabulary outposts. The RIC was the British Irish police. They would strike in small numbers at these little isolated RIC outposts and take what they could in terms of weapons and ammunition and build up from there. He also created a special unit known as the Squad, whose function was to assassinate Irish informers and British secret agents. Now, the British responded to these operations in their conventional way. They declared martial law, 
They put a huge price on Michael Collins's head. In today's terms, I think it amounts to close to half a million pounds. And they employed paramilitary police units, such as the notorious Black and Tans, to try to crack down on things. Ironically, the Black and Tans and the other auxiliary forces oftentimes only strengthened Collins's cause because they had a tendency to vent their frustrations on hapless civilians and thereby drive increasingly more of the Irish population to support Michael Collins. Collins was waging an asymmetric war, one which played to his side's advantages and turned the British government's advantages, such as manpower, firepower, and resources, into weaknesses. During much of the war against the British, Collins was actually running things more than people who on paper outranked him in the Irish Republic, and yet he just managed to get things done somehow. The IRA had to depend mostly on their enemies for weapons and equipment. They were able to smuggle in a little bit, but never remotely enough to to fund their cause. So they scavenged, they made do with what they could, and they also MacGyvered together their own homebrewed explosives and ammunition and so forth. IRA men would often go out on a mission armed with nothing more than a firearm, four or five rounds of ammunition, and maybe one or two homemade explosives, and that was it. Despite the fact that he never had more than about 3,000 men available at any one given time in the entire war, Collins beat the British because he understood that in the modern world, narrative matters more than what actually happens physically on the battlefield. He even got British Prime Minister David Lloyd George to think that he was leading a much larger guerrilla force than he ever actually was. Over the course of the war, a few other leaders in the Irish republics such as Eamon de Valera wanted to abandon guerrilla warfare and fight conventional battles because they thought it was a more respectable way that other countries in the world would look up to more. Thankfully for the cause of Irish independence, that didn't happen. That change never, never occurred. And Collins continued leading his guerrilla campaign. Author James Gleason writes this of Michael Collins. Collins knew little about arms or explosives. He had never had military training. He should not have known anything about the way in which chiefs think and operate. Yet he built up a civilian army, a small, poorly armed force that badgered and goaded into reprisal fully trained and heavily armed troops and police. And in doing this, Collins turned the British state, uh, its strengths, against it. One of the high points of Collins's campaign, one of his biggest successes, was on Sunday, November 21st, 1920, when Collins's men from the squad simultaneously assassinated 14 people associated with British authority in Ireland, 11 of whom were key men in British intelligence. This later gets known as Bloody Sunday. Not just for that reason, but because later that day, British auxiliaries went into Croke Park in Dublin, a Gaelic Athletic Association stadium, and fired into a crowd of people at a, at a Celtic uh, football game and killed a bunch of Uh, killed, I think, around the same number of men as Collins' men had assassinated. By the summer of 1921, the British government realized they had no realistic chance of establishing control over much of Ireland. And so they went to the negotiating uh, negotiating table, offered a truce, and began negotiations, which led to the creation of something called the Irish Free State, which eventually evolved into the independent Irish Republic. With shockingly little in the way of resources, Collins had accomplished something that 800 years of Irish patriots had been unable to achieve. He had ended the British occupation, at least of most of the island. 
And the lessons of Collins and of other successful practitioners of guerrilla warfare, I think, have a lot of relevance to many other areas of life and human endeavor outside of just the realm of violent conflict. Now, guerrilla warfare, I would define as something along the lines of a form of warfare in which a small group or groups of combatants, who may or may not be officially part of any military, use unconventional tactics, mobility, surprise, hit and run, clever use of terrain, and support from a local population in order to defeat a much larger, less agile conventional force. Guerrillas are usually inferior in numbers and hardware to their conventional opponents and have to cleverly use whatever it is they do have available. There are lots of other geniuses of guerrilla warfare in history besides Michael Collins. They all have differing ideologies and differing codes of ethics, some of which probably we would agree more or less with than others. But I think we can learn from all of them, even those whose goals and philosophy and codes of ethics we may find repugnant. We can still learn useful things from them. And these things can be useful in our lives, even if we never even remotely come close to engaging in actual physical, violent, guerrilla conflict. And I'm not at all the first person to realize this insight. I'm sure many of you in here have run into the word guerrilla used as an adjective ahead of a noun to describe some other activity. I've heard of things like guerrilla filmmaking, guerrilla gardening, guerrilla radio, guerrilla marketing, guerrilla art, guerrilla architecture, guerrilla journalism, guerrilla education. Probably you all could come up with more Um, And I could as well if I wanted to sit here all day. There's lots of lessons you can learn here, but I'm just going to give you ten lessons that I've taken away from studying guerrilla warfare for a lot of years. I'm going to keep it to ten. It's a nice round number, and we don't want to be here all day. Lesson number one, don't be afraid to start small and build up your resources and skills from there. Michael Collins' early operations were often extremely small-scale, so were those of another famous guerrilla warrior you may have heard of, General Giap of Vietnam. When Giap launched his first attack on French forces in 1944, he used every asset he had available to him, which was a total of 34 men, most of them armed with antique weapons. But they succeeded in taking over a French outpost and took weapons from them and then built up their forces from there. And over a number of decades, they would defeat not only the French, but the United States starting from that humble beginning, 34 men with a few antique weapons. Lesson number two, turn your weaknesses into strengths, and if you have anything like an opponent or competitor or what have you, try to turn their strengths into weaknesses. Michael Collins did this by goading British forces into overreacting and venting their rage on civilians, thereby strengthening support for his own cause. In other words, he made the British advantages in manpower and firepower ultimately turn into weaknesses. Lesson number three, your resourcefulness is much more important than your resources. The gorilla is lightly equipped, he's fast, and he's mobile, and he does not rely on hardware to compensate for lack of skill. The enemy is often the gorilla's primary source of weapons, ammunition, and supplies of all kinds. As Mao once said, we have a claim on the output of the arsenals of London, as well as of Hanyang. And what is more, it is to be delivered to us by the enemy's own transport corps. This is the sober truth, not a joke. Now, you will need some resources to do just about anything. 
tangible, intangible, both, whatever. But if you go about accomplishing something in the way of the gorilla, you'll find you need less stuff than you think. And you certainly are going to need less than any conventional competitors you might be up against. So be creative in how you acquire and use resources, improvise, scavenge, repurpose, etc. Again, Mao Zedong. The equipment of gorillas cannot be based on what gorillas want or even what they need, but must be based on what is available for their use. Gorillas must not depend too much on an armory. The enemy is the principal source of their supply. My lesson number four from Gorilla Warfare. Always remember, the greatest resources you have are human resources, namely yourself and any partners you might be working with. In the intro to his translation of Mao Zedong's On Guerrilla Warfare, Samuel Griffith writes this about guerrilla warfare and how it differs from conventional war. It is often said that guerrilla warfare is primitive. This general, generalization is dangerously misleading and true only in the technological sense. Guerrilla war is not dependent for success on the efficient operation of complex mechanical devices, highly organized logistical systems, or the accuracy of electronic computers. Its basic element is man, and man is more complex than any of his machines. End quote. Lesson number five. When following the way of the gorilla, conventional experience and formal qualifications in a field are rarely an asset and may often be detrimental. During the American War of Independence, some of the most successful leaders in that war, men such as Nathaniel Green, Daniel Morgan, Henry Knox, William Heath, were men who had little or no prior military experience before the conflict. By contrast, some other individuals with names like George Washington who had more extensive conventional uh, qualifications, stumbled around trying to fight conventional battles and mostly got their butts kicked by the British in so doing. Another thing to keep in mind is a corollary to this, which will be my um, number six, kind of a flip side or corollary to number five. Sometimes knowledge and experience in a seemingly unrelated field can help you. Like Michael Collins with his background as a postal and bank clerk like Colonel T.E. Lawrence with his background as an archaeologist, Mao and Jap, both teachers. And all these guys in various ways found their prior experience had some relevance to leading guerrilla warfare. Lesson number seven. When seeking to accomplish something via the guerrilla way, do not try to emulate your conventional competitors or opponents. The reality is in history, every time that a successful guerrilla force changes tactics and tries to fight in a conventional way, it usually ends in disaster or narrowly averted disaster. There's a very interesting book about how weaker sides can win in conflict. It's entitled How the Weak Win Wars, a Theory of Asymmetric Conflict by an author named Ivan Aragorn Toft. And in this book, Toft writes, quote, when actors employ similar strategic approaches, relative power explains the outcome. Strong actors will win quickly and decisively. When actors employ opposite strategic approaches, weak actors are much more likely to win, even when everything we think we know about power says they shouldn't. And by the way, opposite approach strategic interactions, meaning opposing a direct attack with an indirect attack, usually leads to problems for the stronger party. 
especially because it usually leads to a longer conflict, and in general, the longer a conflict drags on, the more, believe it or not, the weaker side is actually favored. History proves this. Another quote from the same book, How the Weak Win Wars. Same approach interactions, meaning meeting a direct attack with a direct defense and that sort of thing. Same approach interactions imply defeat for weak actors because there is nothing to mediate or deflect a strong actor's power advantage. Barring a battlefield miracle, these interactions should therefore be resolved in proportion to the force applied. By contrast, opposite approach interactions imply victory for weak actors because the weak refuse to engage where the strong has a power advantage, i.e. on their terms. In other words, let them fight their war and you fight yours. Lesson number eight, knowledge, intelligence, information, and understanding are of vital importance. You should truly know yourself and know your opponent, whatever opponent might mean in a particular context. Again, all the way, this goes all the way back to Sun Tzu, know your opponent and know yourself. Michael Collins had spent many years in London. Um, in the case of Vietnam, both General Giap and Ho Chi Minh understood both their own side and the opponents that they faced. T.E. Lawrence understood both his Arab allies and his Turkish opponents. Lesson number nine, carefully pick your battles. Engage only when you feel you have an advantage, and if things nonetheless turn against you, don't hesitate to quickly engage and disperse. Another quote from Mao Zedong on this. There is in guerrilla warfare no such thing as a decisive battle. There is nothing comparable to a fixed passive defense. In any difficult endeavor, try to choose your approach wisely, but always be willing to modify or even abandon an approach or idea that clearly is not working so that you don't waste your precious resources of time, energy, money, and so on. Instead, be willing to cut your losses when necessary and be willing to change tactics and try another approach. Lesson number 10. If whatever project it is you're engaged in requires setting up some sort of organization of other people, Make it minimalist, decentralized, relatively egalitarian, and flexible, and only recruit successful, sorry, only recruit people committed to the cause. Guerrilla forces that win almost always are very decentralized in structure. The organization needs to be in agreement about whatever the goals are and sort of the very big picture of how we're going to approach solving them, but small local units should have a lot of initiative to be able to make their own decisions as things you know, take shape on the ground. And I have a whole bunch of Mao Zedong quotes. This is where I, I snatched that Guinness record on this topic. In guerrilla warfare, this is Mao Zedong, in guerrilla warfare, small units acting independently play the principal role and there must be no excessive interference with their activities. A guerrilla group ought to operate on the principle that only volunteers are acceptable for service. It is a mistake to impress people into service. The basis for guerrilla discipline must be individual conscience. With guerrillas, a discipline of compulsion is ineffective. It's amazing this coming out of the mouth of Mao Zedong, but he did literally write the book on guerrilla warfare. The mode of living of the officers and soldiers must not differ too much, and this is particularly true in the case of guerrilla troops. End quotes from Mao Zedong. Now, people may need to, in such an organization, 
fill in multiple jobs and do things that technically are another department's responsibility or what have you, as in the case of Michael Collins. He kind of was running everything, even though he was just Minister of Finance and Intelligence and a few other things. Titles and departments cannot be rigidly defined and enforced in such an organization. Conventional opponents usually are hobbled by top-down, rigid, hierarchical sorts of organizations. This makes them very slow to adapt. They tend to keep repeating the same behaviors that don't work over and over and over again and just try the same thing but harder. By contrast, a small, lean, nimble organization composed of people who believe in a cause is going to always prevail against an opponent that is the opposite of those things. So those are ten things I see as characteristics of successful guerrilla warriors that also have relevance potentially to almost any aspect of life you can imagine. Whether it's an entrepreneurial activity, whether it's activism, whether it's some sort of creative project, what have you, there's the possibility to use the way of the guerrilla to leverage meager resources into success. So I'm going to go through one specific case study of how someone kind of unknowingly, just sort of instinctively, as far as I know, not a real student of the history of guerrilla warfare, nonetheless used the way of the guerrilla to become successful in the world of movie making. And this brings us back to George Romero. In 1968, George Romero was an unknown filmmaker in the Pittsburgh area who decided, I'm going to make a horror movie. He was only in his late 20s. His experience prior to embarking on making this horror movie was limited to, believe it or not, making some contributions to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which was filmed in Pittsburgh at the time. And also, he did some beer and laundry detergent commercials. With that background, he said, I'm going to make a horror movie. With very little funding, only a total of about $114,000, much of which, by the way, he acquired after all the filming had been done, George Romero and some friends and partners went to make their movie. And the film they made, we've, we've all heard of it, would eventually be known as Night of the Living Dead. To make the movie, they rented an abandoned farmhouse for the filming. And to save money, they lived in the same farmhouse while they were working on the film. They used 35-millimeter black and white film, primarily or entirely, because it was cheap. At a time when the vast majority of everybody had long since gone to color, they made that movie in black and white. And it's one of the things, I think, that makes Night of the Living Dead such a unique film with such a unique power to it. When they started to shoot the film, they didn't even know if it was ever going to be successfully completed. And they basically learned how to make a movie by making a movie. Most of the people involved with making Night of the Living Dead held multiple jobs. Most of them had little or no prior experience in anything to do with filmmaking before this. George Romero himself did writing, directing, cinematography, and editing, things that in a big Hollywood movie, you have about three dozen people doing two of those things. Other people had multiple jobs as well. A guy named Russ Streiner was both a producer and an actor. Another guy named John Russo contributed to the writing and also played one of the zombies in the film. Vince Servinsky, who was the owner of a local Pittsburgh roller skating rink, not only invested finances in the film, but he was a production designer, actor, and kind of a random get-her-done sort of guy who would just take care of miscellaneous tasks like 
For example, at one point when they were making the movie, they needed a bridge over a little creek by the farmhouse, and this guy just went and slapped together a bridge, and it actually they drove a car over it, and it didn't collapse. And the government was not even involved in making that bridge. <laughs> My bridges. Carl Hardman and Marilyn Eastman did triple duty, both of them as actors, makeup artists, and audio engineers. The zombies in this classic film were mostly played by friends, family, random local people, and clients from Romero's days doing commercials. They got a local TV news guy to play the newsman in the movie. And they got a local steelworker to play the sheriff that the newsman interviews. The dialogue, by the way, of those scenes is almost entirely ad-libbed. They were literally making it all up as they went along. They got a helicopter pilot from a local radio station to come and help them get some aerial footage. They got some local cops. This is back in, you know, the not-so-taze-happy days, I guess. They got some local cops to come out and be extras and even bring their vehicles and all their gear and whatever to make it look like there really were cops coming to fight the zombies. One of the investors in the film owned a chain of butcher shops in the area, and he donated a whole bunch of animal entrails. And so what you're seeing when you watch Night of the Living Dead are actors ripping apart and in some cases literally chomping into actual animal guts. This is why that movie looks so authentic. Romero can't take credit for this innovation, but he made good use of it. Bosco syrup for blood. Remember, you're, you're filming in black and white, right? As Alfred Hitchcock discovered when making Psycho, if you're filming in black and white, chocolate syrup makes very good blood. To give a sense in the movie, they're filming in this one little farmhouse area outside of Pittsburgh, and yet they wanted to give you the sense that there is a global zombie outbreak happening. How do you do that? Well, the answer is they made their own little... Um, TV news and radio segments and had the stars of the film kind of watch and, and listen to these things and then you get a sense of, oh my gosh, this is a global thing. Think of how he's innovating, saying, yeah, I don't have hardly a budget at all. I have very little in the way of resources. How can I still tell a story effectively? How can I still make a good movie? Through a lot of hard work, creativity, ingenuity, Despite their almost complete lack of resources and experience and know-how, or perhaps because of it, they managed to get the movie filmed, edited, and distributed, and eventually it became a classic. Probably everybody in this tent has at least heard of Night of the Living Dead. Probably most of us have seen it. Some of us, like me, may have seen it more times than they can count. Most of the early reviews of this film in the fancy newspapers panned the film as just an exploitative schlock film. But as time went on, the more hip reviewers started to realize that this was something different. This was not a run-of-the-mill, stupid, guts-and-gore, cheapo horror movie. In fact, some of the more intelligent reviewers eventually began to sing its praises, and some even started using the dreaded A-word. This thing is art. Roger Ebert initially panned it as a crappy movie, and then later publicly retracted his review for a much more favorable one. Despite, again, the fact that this thing was made in black and white after the whole world had gone to color for movies, it became a classic. One commentator said that courage, passion, and persistence are what enabled George Romero to actually make this movie. 
To that, I would add things like creativity, and in particular, a genius for the iron triangle of improvising, adapting, and overcoming. And when you think about all those characteristics, courage, passion, persistence, a genius for adapting and overcoming, etc., and you think back to what Michael Collins did in defeating the British Empire with a few thousand men, many of whom didn't have decent weapons. These are, these are parallel approaches. This humble zombie film, Night of the Living Dead, brought a new level of realism to horror films, far beyond anything that came before. The movie resonated on a level that no other horror movie from the late 60s that I'm aware of did. It explored, surprisingly perhaps, given the fact it's just a humble zombie movie, it explored films relating to race relations, the violence of the late 60s, including the Vietnam War, uh, the, the riots, all the other you know, instability, and the overall breakdown of institutions. All these sorts of themes that mainstream Hollywood and media and so on was scared to really talk about much in 1968, Romero was able to explore in the context of a low-budget black-and-white zombie film. The top three uh, three grossing movies of 1968 in order are the following. 2001, A Space Odyssey, which had a budget of $10 million. Funny Girl, which, by the way, I didn't even know what the hell that was. Yeah, I, I had to look that one up. It was, I think, Bette Midler or something like that. Robert Streisand, sorry, the other one, yeah. I, would, I always get them too confused. The other person that makes those kind of movies. Um, and then the, the number three grossing movie of the year was The Love Bug. So you have 2001 A Space Odyssey, $10 million budget. Funny Girl, $14 million. Can you believe that Funny Girl had 40% more of a budget than 2001 A Space Odyssey? What were they doing with that money? Yeah. Yeah, it's all going to one person. And then the love bug. The love bug had a budget of $5 million. And yet, with only about 2% of the budget, of the lowest budget of those top three films, namely the love bug, Romero made a movie that, while not in the top three grossing films of 1968, still came in at number 10 which, by the way, means it's astronomically more profitable than any of them. They made Night of the Living Dead on $114,000, and it eventually grossed over $30 million at the box office. And I know this might, you know, hurt some of your feelings if you're big Herbie fans, but most people would probably agree that Night of the Living Dead is a way more important and influential and impactful film than The Love Bug. Sorry to ruin your day, those of you who are VW fans. The film holds a 96% fresh rating at the Oracle of all, all Film Reviews, Rotten Tomatoes. It's received numerous honors and awards over the years. It's been in multiple top 100 horror movies of all time lists from many different you know, institutions and so on. Usually it's in the top 10 or 20. It's even been added to the Library of Congress's National Film Registry of Significant Films. A fact despite which I still like the movie. (laughs) The movie also, for good or for ill, kicked off the modern zombie phenomenon, which may or may not have jumped the shark by now, but 
It was, it was good when it was, you know, in its prime. And I don't think any of us in here would deny that Romero and his partners and friends and associates not only achieve their goal of, let's make a movie, but they wildly surpass anything they could have fantasized about when they set off to that isolated farmhouse in uh, the Pittsburgh area with a few thousand dollars and some friends. So, whatever it is that you're into, whatever it is that you are currently doing or wanting to do, I hope you can get some insight, some inspiration um, of how to adapt the approach of guerrilla fighters to whatever it is that you're doing, entrepreneurial activity, activism, some sort of creative activity, whatever it is. Those lessons, I think, can potentially be impl- applied to almost any area of human activity or human endeavor. Many people have ideas about stuff they'd like to do or stuff they'd like to accomplish. Most of them, most of the time, never really get around to actually doing any of it. I know because I'm as guilty of this as anybody and have a giant list of things I want to do that I've never done. And realistically, not everything that you might want to accomplish or do is doable. But there's a lot of things that really are doable that somehow just never get done. And I think that the way of the gorilla offers a possible path of how to make progress and ultimately achieve very difficult goals. I think a big part of why a lot of people never start important projects that they really feel like they want to do is because they want to wait until they've got all the right equipment. They want to wait until they've got all the right expertise, all the right credentials. They want to wait until they've got all the right, um, you know, huge amounts of funding for the project, whatever it is, before they start actually doing anything. But when Michael Collins made the decision to try to end 800 years of British occupation of Ireland, he did not want to wait around until Ireland had sufficient money and equipment and conventional forces to go engage in war against the British. Instead, he looked at what he had, decided to make do with what what he did have, use it as cleverly as he could, build up from there, and he eventually achieved his goal. In fact, he did it in just a few years. Other successful guerrilla fighters in history, whether it's Lawrence or Mao or Jap or many, many more, have also pulled off crazy, improbable feats like this by employing the way of the guerrilla. Same thing when George Romero and his friends and partners decided to make a kick-ass horror movie. They didn't let the fact that they had minimal resources and experience and so on get in their way. They went out there and did it. And when they needed to learn how to do something, they learned it by actually doing it. They learned to make a movie in the process of making a movie. George Romero, as far as I know, achieved what he did with Night of the Living Dead without having deeply studied the history of guerrilla warfare, and so on. Somehow, he just had an instinctive knack for creativity, for adapting, and for DIY. But imagine what somebody could accomplish in any field if you've studied the way of the guerrilla and really thought about it and thought about how it might apply to things that are not war. Learn these lessons and actually consciously try to incorporate them into whatever it is you're doing. So I just want to wrap it up by saying that no matter what you're into, 
as far as your career, activism, side projects, whatever it is, I think that you can be, again, doesn't necessarily, I quoted Mao Zedong a bunch, not a fan of what he actually, you know, wanted to do and did. Doesn't mean he didn't understand how guerrilla warfare worked. Um, regardless of whether or not you agree with the great guerrilla warriors of history, I still think you can learn a lot of valuable and useful lessons. Yes, a rare case we've found, perhaps, where history is actually useful. And I think we can be inspired by these people. We can benefit from adopting their approach, their mindset, and the lessons they learned in guerrilla warfare to all sorts of other activities that are not war. So, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, by subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, there are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org slash donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com slash profcj, where if you pledge to help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode, Remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, the final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission, from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.